Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me, I'm your host. You may recognize my lovely voice and not-so-lovely mug, as I'm also the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to leadership. And as I mentioned each week, this new podcast focused on members in the C-suite really birthed out of what were the most popular interviews from C-suite conversations. It wasn't always the Academy Award-winning actress or actor. It wasn't always the number one best-selling author or business titan or thought leader. It was often someone like you and I that's had a similar journey with some great pivots that made it into the C-suite and their relevance and even relatability is something we all can learn from. And today's guest is exactly that model. Her name is Nicole Lamoro. She is the SVP and CHRO of a small company you may have heard of called IBM. And she's joining us today from just outside New York City. Nicole, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here today. Great to have you. Nicola, before we start talking about some of the things you've learned on your career journey, your view sort of on culture and hybrid work and, and, and the kind of the future of inclusion, we'll get to a lot of different topics in our half an hour. Would you take a few minutes and reorient our listeners and viewers to your journey? How many years have you been with IBM? My sense from your age and your tenure, you must have started in high school. So talk a bit about your educational background and your path to the C-suite. Sure, Scott. So I've been with IBM for 22 years. Congrats. Um, I joined as an intern. In fact, I was an undergraduate at Cornell University studying industrial and labor relations, but I had aspirations to go to law school. The only problem was I needed to make a little money before I went to law school. So I did an internship with IBM. And after that summer, I never looked back. Uh, because of the opportunities that were afforded to me here, the different types of roles I got to have within HR, within the company, but also the fact that at IBM, you can work in a hardware business, a software business, sales, consulting. There are lots of different business models at play here. I decided to stay. Um, I've had the opportunity to do two international assignments, wow. both to Shanghai, China. And as I said, I covered a wide variety of HR functional areas from learning and talent development to compensation and benefits, all in my 22 years here. I will also say this, Scott, and I know you can probably appreciate this. If you look at LinkedIn or my CV, it may look like this was all completely planned, very linear, uh, but in reality, it was a lot of chaos. There were sideway mo moves and backward moves and sometimes not exactly knowing what to do next. So we can spend some time talking about that, uh, but it has been a wild ride and totally fulfilling. I'm looking forward to this conversation. First, you've lived in both New York cities because for those who haven't been yet to Shanghai, it is the New York City of the East, right? You go to Shanghai and you think, wow, this is just like no other place in the world other than maybe New York City, right? In terms of culture and- Absolutely, and, yes, and yeah. maybe three times bigger. I think you're probably right, yeah. And I'm hoping, although we wish our Shanghai friends good health, I hope you got out of there before the pandemic because they've had a rough bout, have they not? With the COVID Absolutely. pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. My heart breaks for them. Let's talk about your, um, your passion at IBM uh, around learning 
As the Chief Human Resource Officer, I think I researched and learned that a couple of years ago, IBM instituted a new kind of protocol, a new standard, that you required a minimum number of hours of learning from each associate every year. I thought it was 40 hours a year of learning. Can you talk about why and what and how and to what end? How have you seen perhaps competencies, retention, culture change? What has that requirement of people to really invest in themselves, how has that benefited the firm overall? Yes, and, and this is something I am deeply passionate about, and I know, Scott, you also share this, but what we started to realize probably in the 2000s, 2010, was that the half-life of skills was shrinking. It used to be that you could go to a university or get a degree or be in a profession, and the skills you learned early on would carry you for your entire career. You would just get more experienced at it. But with technology emerging, new programming languages, new ways of working, we quickly identified that regardless of your domain, regardless of your job role, HR, marketing, development, one of the critical success factors going forward because of this dynamic we were seeing with skills was going to be around continuous learning an employee's ability to continuously learn and reinvent themselves was really going to be the factor about whether or not they were successful in their profession or successful with a corporation. And so to help get the ball rolling on that, we implemented what we called Think 40. So think a play on one of IBM's taglines and 40 for 40 hours, as you rightly said. And this was about getting employees to know that this was expected of them on an annual basis to take 40 hours of learning and training. It was also to send a signal to their managers to ensure that they had time to do that within the workday. So where are we now? Well, we started this in 2012, so about 10 years ago. 10 years later, we still talk about Think 40. And last year, the average IBMer actually did more than double. The average IBMer did 88 hours of training. And this is how we're getting that culture going of continuous learning. And what are some of the outcomes of it? Well, simply, we're getting employees that have headlights and ability to move into new jobs. In our industry, that can be cybersecurity, blockchain, even quantum comp computing. It's giving people a broader perspective of their careers within the company. Many employees are telling us, as you mentioned around retention, that they don't feel like they have to go outside to get a new opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And we're making an investment in their learning. So this is something we are totally passionate about, not just for solving short-term skill gap issues, but ensuring kind of the retention of talent and the relevance of our skills in our company going forward. Uh, Nickel beautifully said, we share this passion of sort of self-disruption. Uh, one of my most horrifying but favorite quotes I've ever heard is that you're never in the room when your career is decided for you. And I think it's both <laughs> equal parts horrifying and enlightening. Somebody else is deciding it. Is your name or not being put up on the chart pad? Is it being crossed through as a potential to go to the Shanghai office based on some interaction or some perceived you know, lack of skill set or maturity or self-awareness, whatever it is? 
I think what IBM's doing, to the extent I know about it, is you're really helping people disrupt themselves, their continuous learning. You're helping them reinvent their skill set, and I'm guessing your retention has been measurably better through the great resignation or great reevaluation or whatever you want to call it, you know, by the week it changes the name, it seems like. Um, quantifiably, do you feel like it's helped you clearly with retention? Yes, absolutely. And maybe even let me say something much more fundamental. We're a tech company that is 111 years old. You don't get to be a tech company where the skills and the technology and the products are continuously changing to, to survive for over a century if you don't yeah. have in your DNA, in your culture, this concept you talked about around disruption. Yeah. Our founder, Thomas Watson Sr. said once that in order for a company to survive, they have to be willing to change everything about themselves except for their beliefs, their values. And so that is true for a business model, but it's also this point that we are instilling in our employees, which is giving us the permission to go attract the best talent, but as you said, also keep the best talent. I feel like you're channeling our CEO, Paul Walker, because he and the former CEO, Bob Whitman, who's now our chairman, are doing just that at Franklin Covey, right? Is we're, we're very clear on the principles that we teach, we're very clear on our methodology, and we're going through a complete reinvention of our processes, you know, moving to a SaaS company and having new content. Uh, uh, you've just described what every organization is going through. Because as you and I both know, every company is now a technology company, whether you're selling software, tulips, or lingerie, and every company <laughs> is in the same business, right? They're selling, they're in the relationship business, they're in the people business at the end of the day. So I'm delighted to hear you talk about that. Let's pivot to a topic that's on everybody's mind, which is the hybrid work scenario. I know, you know, we're not post-pandemic, so I've stopped saying post-pandemic. I caught COVID about 13 days ago. I'm in the clear, fortunately, quadruple vaccinated. Um, but every company's handling it different. Some are back to work, some are fully virtual. I had a company last week tell me they shut down all five of their offices. They're fully virtual now. How is IBM coaching, advising, and training your leaders to live in a hybrid future where we know we're not going back to the way it was fully. I don't know what your exact protocol is around how you work, but you have to lead differently now, whether it be through empathy, through better listening skills. Tell me some of the things you're dealing with as you move your leaders into a new style of leadership in a hybrid world. Absolutely. And so maybe I'll just take a moment, Scott, to explain exactly kind of what our approach is yeah. to these, this new way of working. For IBM, this is more about evolution, not revolution. So before the pandemic, 15% of our workforce could only do their job from an office. They're our manufacturing our employees. They run our data centers, our, our quantum scientists, right? They can only do that in an IBM office. Those employees actually were our essential employees during the pandemic, largely coming back into the office to do their role. 15% of our employees on the other side of it aren't in an IBM office at all. They are completely remote. These are individuals that think of them as SWAT team members. They can do their job remotely when and where a client needs them. They hop on a plane and they go. 
the rest of our employees, so the other 70%, were within commuting distance to an IBM office. But because we have a long culture of flexibility, on any given day, only 60 to 70% of them were actually in the office. So the pivot we are now making in this new world of working is not to disrupt that flexibility. You will always need individual flexibility in a modern workforce. But instead, we are pivoting to being primarily team-focused flexibility. And this is your point around how are we coaching leaders and managers around modern work design? How are they going to decide for their team when do you come together? What do you do when you're together in the office? And what are the workflows and the work design that you do outside of the office? And so one big skill is that if a company tries to do this top down, particularly when you're as large and diversified as IBM with the different type of job roles we have, it won't work because hybrid work, the cadence of work, where you work, when you work, must follow the actual cadence of the work you do. It can't be arbitrary. And so we're teaching leaders to really, A, think about work design, workflows. Two, adopt modern tools. What you used to do in a conference room on a, on a whiteboard, can you use modern virtual technology to do that? So we are also thinking about modern tools and then the last thing we are thinking about is exactly this point around co-creating with teams. Just because you're the leader or manager, when it comes to hybrid work, doesn't mean you have to have all the answers. Co-create the right cadence, flow, work design, schedule with the teams and be willing to experiment and adjust if it's not working. So that's just very tactically around hybrid work. I will though, kind of maybe answer the second part of your question around leadership behaviors, because the pandemic was horrific and awful for many, many people. But there are some silver linings that I think we learned during the pandemic that we need to make sure that leadership brings to the forefront in whatever a post-pandemic world or this era we're in now. One is around empathy. And during the pandemic, personal, professional lives totally co collided. You know, your office was your home, was your family space, was your team space. It all was the same. And so having empathy and understanding from a health perspective, from a personal perspective, and from a work perspective, what an individual teammate was going through became critically important. I think that is a wonderful thing that we need to translate even outside of the pandemic. The second piece that we're teaching around uh, in leadership is this point around transparency. In the world we're living in now, employee voice, employees wanting to know not just what is happening, but why it's happening, and being able to communicate with that authenticity uh, is really important. No longer kind of a memo from the corporate office down to all employees about this is what's happening. It's not good enough. We need to be able to have these interactions virtually and face-to-face -face in a transparent way. 
uh, empathy is a leadership competency, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. It used to be, and, and Scott, I know you'll appreciate this, we might have said, oh, empathy was a nice to have or what might have distinguished a good leader from a great leader, right? Empathy right now is what makes a leader. Well said. I was in Manhattan two days ago meeting with a large organization, and during lunch, they shared sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek that a memo had come out from their parent company the day before. And the memo said, in essence, we'd like you to keep your in-office chatter to a minimum because it will alienate those who aren't in the office and they all feel disconnected. And so like all policies that are probably well-intended, it obviously wasn't all the way thought through, and maybe not exactly quoted, although that's what my colleague said, I guess the essence of that is, is we're trying to create inclusion and engagement. We're trying to make sure that leaders create a culture where everybody feels valued and engaged and they want to stay, whether you're hybrid or at home or you're in Shanghai reporting to a leader in Des Moines. It's all changed. It's different. Uh, without, without laughing or critiquing about this memo, we're, it's kind of the Wild West, is it not? I mean, we intend to do the right thing, but it's an awkward place right now as we all kind of find where is our puck moving and trying to skate towards that. And we're not even sure where the puck's going to end up when it comes to the hybrid virtual in-office, out-of-office policies. Yeah, I think you're right, Scott. And I think this is where, A, we have to really double down on this point around experimentation. We don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know if what we're about to try is going to work or not. And I think we all have to get comfortable with experimentation, with maybe failing fast, or as some call it, kind of failing forward. We are in a world now where that is the only mode of operating, so we have to get comfortable with that. I think the other piece around this is um, this point around minimizing the hierarchy. Leaders don't have all the answers. And so this co-creation, this voice, this asking for input is becoming more and more important. To me, I know some people fear the chaos of it, but what it really is, is engagement. What it really is, is helping to bring solutions forward. Um, and it's really going to buy, build buy-in among kind of the entire organization. So I agree with you that we can't use the fear of chaos as kind of the reason why, hey, we're not going to do anything. Try to see what works. And if you can authentically communicate why you're trying that, why you think it might work, it makes all the difference. Nickel, let's get personal. When I say personal, of course, I mean vulnerable. Let's talk about your own career journey. Uh, as you think about the people who report to you, how many direct reports do you have? So I have eight direct reports. That's a, that, that's a, a fair and reasonable number. Uh, how would they describe your greatest leadership strengths? Um, I don't know. You might have to ask them or some of them. Oh, might, we did. Uh, we did off oh, camera oh, and it's going to be aired on NBC next week. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so let, let me tell you, here's what uh, I hope they would say. Re re really three things, because these are three things that I judge myself on at the end of every day. Did I show up this way as a leader, as a manager? 
And the three things are, I want to bring intentional change. I'll come back to that. Focused co-creation and confident humility. That's how I want to show up for my team every day. And this point on intentional change, it's exactly what you said, Scott. I mean, particularly in HR teams right now, there is no playbook for what me, my team, our organization has to deliver. Every day is a new day. And so it is about learning. And if you're not careful, going with the flow with that change can seem like chaos. It can seem overwhelming. It can seem exhausting. So one of the things that I hope that my management style does for my team is it enables that change, but in an intentional way. And sometimes that's around prioritizing. Yep, we're gonna go after that. We're gonna go try to solve that problem. Nope, we're gonna let this just simmer for another day or two. Um, and so intentional change is the first piece of my management style that I, I try to bring. This point on focused co-creation. Again, I want to bring my team along with me and I don't necessarily have all the answers. So when we're facing change or we're facing a huge challenge or we don't know what to do next, bringing in multiple diverse perspectives, bringing the team together and trying to decide on a path forward, but again, in a focused way, is the problem we're trying to solve a problem worth solving? And I think that's one of the things I can bring as a leader of, yep, this is a problem that needs to solve. And then how do we co-create the answer together? And then last, this point on kind of confident humility. Um, how I want to show up for my team every day is humble. Knowing when I've made a mistake, admitting when I've made a mistake, asking them for feedback, asking them for their perspectives, but still being confident as a leader, still instilling in them that I'm supporting them and that I will also charge a hill for them when needed. So those are the three ways that, you know, I hope I show up for my team. Let's build on that because I want to talk about the, um, the crucial linchpin that leaders play in an organization. Just last night, a friend of mine uh, from Park City, Utah, I live in Salt Lake, called me and wanted some career advice. We happen to go to the same church together, and although she's in the tech industry and I'm not, she wanted some career advice. And she had just joined a new company as a senior sales producer, individual contributor with a sales number. And she'd been there a year, and the comp plan wasn't kind of working out as she thought it might. It was a variety of reasons, supply chain and delivery and delayed commissions. And I don't think it was an ethical issue. It just was, yeah, this isn't going to work for my family and I, and she's the breadwinner. Her husband is the stay-at-home father to three young boys. And I also have three young boys, so we have some things in common, meaning insanity. So... <laughs> She calls me and she kind of goes through all the comps. Like, here is their base and here is my base. And here is their commission plan. And here is my commission plan. And here's how much of it's guaranteed and not. And we went through all the numbers. And it was pretty clear that she was both running from something and also running to something. And I said, you know, that's a pretty good sign when you know you're kind of doing both of those. I thought, you know, I can see why you would choose to change. You've been in this other company for less than a year. I don't usually advocate a move before that. And then she said something profound, almost as if it was a, a throwaway. She said, and I'm not kidding you, she said, 
by the way, up until now, the whole conversation had been about compensation. And then she said, almost innocuously, plus, my boss is kind of missing in action. He's, i barely seen him in two weeks. He leaves early most days. He misses calls with me. He's kind of checked out, so I think I'll leave. And she almost was like an inner dialogue, outer playing. I didn't say anything. I hung up the phone and thought, wow, we just had this whole conversation about the financial side of her job, the paycheck, the financial paycheck side. But then she kind of convinced herself that, there was no connection to her leader. She felt that he, could have been a she, happened to be a he, wasn't invested. No doubt there were things going on in his life. But it was interesting in that one point to see the, the um, indisputable linkage between individual contributors, or for that matter, even leaders, and their relationship with their leader and how that relates to retention. Maybe you disagree with me, but riff on that for a moment. Yeah, so... so. This is so near and dear to my heart. I spent, prior to uh, getting in the seat of CHRO, I spent about five years as our total rewards leader at IBM, compensation and benefits. And I used to say to my team and to leaders that came to me that 95% of the questions I was asked about compensation actually had nothing to do with compensation. <laughs> that people that were coming to me with problems with their compensation, it wasn't problems mm -hmm. about compensation. It was problems about career growth. It was problems about the culture that they were working in. It was problems with the relationship with their manager. I think a lot of times, and this is natural in organizations and natural for professionals, it's hard to say, I don't like my manager. It's hard, it feels very personal. It's hard to say, I'm not growing my skills or my heart isn't in this or I don't have enough time. It's easier to say, oh, I'd like to make more money. It's easier to say, oh, there's a financial gap. That's why I'm going somewhere else. And Here's what I would, would say to everyone listening, and it's guidance I give in, in my own organization. We need to do two things. For any professionals that are out there listening, make sure you are honest with yourself about what is really important to you. And be unapologetic about it. Now, this is gonna take a lot of soul searching. There was a period early in my career where, um, Honestly, status was the most important thing to me. Yeah. I would have gotten a, taken a pay cut yeah. to get promoted. Yeah. It was the most important thing to me. That was a value of yours, right? It was title. It was, was a value, it sure. Was a value. It was a value. I saw, you know, former, you know, classmates from university. It was something that right. was important to me. And I remember sitting down and having a conversation uh, with my manager, and I was actually afraid and embarrassed maybe to even say out loud, I care about status. And so we had this long conversation. I thought I was crystal clear. And the next day, my manager came to me with a pay increase. And I remember maybe being happy for about two days and then realizing that's not what I wanted at all, but that's what my manager thought in my long conversation that I was trying to articulate. So the advice I give to professionals is do soul searching for yourself. Don't be embarrassed. 
know what's important to you. It might be personal time. It might be autonomy. It might be money. It might be status. It might be career growth. Whatever it is, determine what's important to you and make sure you articulate that to your manager. Now, managers also have a responsibility here. You have to create a safe space where your employee, where your team can tell you this. Your answer still might be, hey, Nickel, there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> or, hey, Nickel, you have to fill these three gaps before you can get promoted. But you have to create that space for an honest conversation. And I think sometimes in organizations, we're talking past each other, or we try to come up with a solution like the comp solution when it's really not the right problem. Nicole, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, and to further that point, when you're the leader making that create, create that safe space, you have to be sure you don't confuse your values with your employees' values. I think one of the best books ever written is by Dr. Um, Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages, because there's also an adaptation to the workplace, is to make sure that what is your love language in the workplace. They had a tough time with um, physical touch, but they did a decent <laughs> job on that one. But I think, it's, I think you're right. You have to make sure that you're not masquerading or confusing your professional values with that of the person who works with you. Okay, Correct. now you thought you were gonna escape the flip side of that previous question, which is, if I was to ask your team, what are Nichols' biggest areas of growth? Like, what is she not good at that I wish she was? What would they say about you? Um, yeah, okay, so, so this is like one of these interview questions, right? Where you, you really want the honest story. You think? You don't want the well, and not really every guest, compliment. And not every guest rises to the occasion. I've had some start with a thing that was critical, but move it into a positive. So I really want, I want people to have confidence that you also demonstrate empathy. You have self-awareness, right? That you know you have some blind spots. Yeah, so I would say one of my biggest blind spots is that I sometimes jump to the answer too quickly. Yeah. You know, I've been here 22 years. I've worked across a lot of geographies, a lot of HR functions, and I sometimes value speed and decisiveness over this point, what I talked about, of I'm really working on co-creating with the team. Um, and so that's the piece that mm. I, I think is yeah. my biggest blind spot yeah. is jumping to the answer too quickly without ensuring that I'm getting a lot of input um, or that I'm allowing the team to surface the right recommendation. Nicole, thank you for sharing that because as I was listening to you, I was thinking it's sometimes counterintuitive because as business leaders, it's all about speed, speed to market, speed to creation, speed to recovery. And we've got to balance the fact that in almost a bifurcation, right? And on the process system strategy side, often speed is the imperative. But on the people side, on the relationship side, rarely, if ever, is fast better than slow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, that's something that I work on uh, every day. And again, I try to create that space, safe space for my team where they can keep me in check and say, wait a minute, Nickel, <laughs> slow down. We need to talk about this a little bit more. And so um, I've given them permission to do that. Thank you for uh, the self-awareness. Last question before we go. I don't ask this of all guests, but I would like to know, especially from you, how are you changed as a leader since the pandemic? You know, since mm -hmm. the last two years, we recognized, I heard 
very recently that the U.S. president is now positive for COVID, double vaccinated, double boosted. Hopefully any president would survive past or future. How has the pandemic changed you? It's changed me in two ways. And so I'll talk from a personal perspective and then also from a, a professional perspective. Um, I have three teenagers. Uh, so during the pandemic... May the Lord have mercy on your soul. I know, I know, Scott. You'll be there soon. Um, I won't survive. Mine are, mine are 8, 10, and 12. There ain't no well way this ticker is going to make it to their teenage years. <laughs> you just wait. It's worth it, I promise. But early in the pandemic, particularly, you know, we were in pretty severe lockdown here yeah. outside of New York for the first three months. Um, while the pandemic was horrific on many levels, the first three months for my family was a pretty special time. It is time I will never get back. I was not traveling. I had three teenagers that couldn't go out with friends, so they were home for dinner. We were watching movies together as a family. We were going on hikes together on the yes. weekends because they didn't have any choice about doing anything else. So it was a great time, but it was a hard reset for me to think about what's important for me outside of work. You can still love your profession. I love my job. I love my team here at IBM. But is it, it did help me put back in balance of, am I making enough time for the things I care about outside of work? And so that was such a hard reset that now even as we're emerging, and I know you and I talked about, we won't say post pandemic because who knows when the finish line is going to be. But now as we're kind of emerging back to a, a new normal, I have carried that with me about, am I leaving the office at reasonable hours? Am I present with them on the weekends? Um, am I managing my travel in the right way so I can be here for IBMers, but I also can be there for them? And so that hard reset on a personal level. Professionally, the thing that the pandemic taught me is exactly what I told you that I'm, I'm still working on is it was impossible to have all the answers. It was impossible for one person to carry an organization. You had to delegate. You had to allow teams to run and make quick decisions. We're in 170 countries. Team in China. The team in Singapore, Australia, couldn't wait for us in New York and headquarters to wake up and make a decision. Yeah. And so it really taught me the power of delegation, the power of context, so that then individuals can make decisions in the right moment, and the power of leaning on experts. And then finally, this point on experimentation. You're going to make decisions sometimes, and they aren't going to work out. And you learn from them and you move forward. So I know that was maybe a long answer, Scott, but no, personally reminder. and professionally, yeah. that's what I learned during the pandemic. Great reminder. Uh, back in the olden days when Franklin Covey was a much smaller company, we used to joke when we interviewed someone to come on board, we would uh, ask ourselves, so what do we think their barbecue factor is? Meaning, like, would we enjoy inviting them to a barbecue at our house? Didn't mean they were an extrovert or an introvert, it's just, were they likable? Were they affable? Could you get to know them? And that's not the criteria for working at Franklin Covey anymore, but I give you a high barbecue factor. You're both credible and very likable. 
Uh, Nicola Lamoureux, thank you for joining us today. Senior Vice President and CHRO at uh, IBM. Thanks for pouring into our listeners and viewers today. Wonderful. Thank you, Scott. And I'd join a barbecue with you anytime. <laughs> Look for the invite. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.